Welcome, welcome yet again to another Sharp Way this awesome Monday evening, 8 to 10 Eastern, the two coolest hours of your week. Yes, I'm so happy to have you again. I'm back here out of New York City. And if you want to join the program, chat with me, ask me a question about whatever you like, or just uh, yell at me, call me a bad name. That also works. Or tell me how awesome you think I am or anything in between. Five, seven, three, four, two, seven, five, four, six, three, five, seven, three, four, two, seven, five, four, six, three. Well, here we are today, Monday. I spent this weekend traveling New York State. For those of you who don't know New York State right now, we are gathering our petitions and gathering our people so that we can get libertarians on the ballot uh, for our April um for our April primary. This is challenging for us. It's the first time the Libertarian Party is actually doing a primary in New York State. We don't actually do that, but we're doing it this time. Yes, we are, and it has been very challenging. So I did six events this weekend. Yep, I was back on the road. For those of you who know, that's what I do. I did the I did in 2018 and in 2019, I did the full sharp. That means I covered the entire state, all 62 counties of New York State, and I began my full sharp of 2020 just last weekend. I did six counties this weekend. I don't remember the three because I forget where I am all the time. That's why I have a team that tells me where I'm going. So I did three I did three on Saturday and three on Sunday. And you know what I met? I met lots of people. I met people who knew who I was, libertarians who voted for me, but I met other people. And that is people who didn't vote for me. People who think there may have been error people who hadn't voted, people who were changing their registration, their enrollment over to Libertarian. This movement is real. I saw it. I'm seeing it. People are getting it. People are saying, you know what? We want to change, and they're changing their registration over. I, I know that at least this weekend, just this weekend, just the events I went to, at least 15 people actually changed their registration over Libertarian. That's amazing. All right, now, it's not a million, I get it, but 15 in one weekend just by me doing a couple events is pretty good. So guess what? We keep doing this. We get more. They tell friends. They tell friends. It begins to grow. This is what I'm looking for. This is what I saw new people coming aboard, but also some of the same people here before showing up and doing what really matters, and that is getting people to want to sign up, getting people to sign petitions to get people on the ballot and to, and to make sure that when April comes, there are libertarians to vote for, and then when November comes, there are more libertarians to vote for, and the liberty movement begins to move forward. All right, what were some of the issues that people were dealing with? Well, there were two, maybe three big issues, and they're kind of covering the, the state but also the nation. And they fall into two generic large pools. One is the military-industrial complex, and the other is the prison-industrial complex. These two things have so many tentacles throughout our country, throughout our world, throughout our state, that many things that make us upset or angry or that bother us somehow are linked to that. And you find people say all the time, 
We got to get rid of the prison industrial complex. We got to get rid of the military industrial complex. Or we got to end all this or end all that or abolish this. You find that often with libertarian candidates, right? As they're going around, I'm against this. I want to abolish that. I want to destroy this. I want to abolish that. Do they really understand what that entails? Do they really understand what that means? Do they know how that affects so many other things, so many other people? These are industrial complexes because people make a living off of it, because people feed their families off of it. Does it make it right? Of course not. I'm not saying it makes it right. That, that's not my argument. That's not even my issue. My issue is because these things are so big, because they affect so many people, that if you just destroy them or end them, you hurt a lot of people right then and there, and what will those people do? There'll be a backlash. You actually may get those people to go against you now. Whatever idea we come up with, we have to deal with what, what's actually happening. Let me cover a couple of those. The first one is more national, the military-industrial complex. What most people don't get, they say, why are we always fighting these wars? We're fighting these wars over oil. We're fighting these wars over oil. And... Part of this is giving out foreign aid and taking over countries and all these different things and having bases everywhere and all these things. Well, you know, part of that's true, but you have to realize something. There are a lot of people who have a, make a living off of this. They might say, well, the military industrial complex is all the fat cats who make all the big dollars and the billions and billions of dollars. Yeah, of course, that's true, that's any industry. But think of all the union workers Think of all the people who service those workers. Think of all the small towns who are making all those weapons, who are making all those uniforms, who are making all that equipment, who are making all those pieces, right? Notice what happens when the military gets a whole bunch of, uh, of, of equipment and then it needs new equipment. It gives it to the police force. When all of a sudden the police force gets all these weapons. As the police force gets all these weapons, we have to, we have to make more weapons and more equipment. And so we build more, and then we fight more wars, and we keep going. But I'm still not done. This actually links into foreign aid. And people say, one side, foreign aid's bad, cut all foreign aid. Or the other, foreign aid helps people. It's so helpful. Why would you do that? Well, most foreign aid isn't, you know, corn that we give, surplus corn and wheat and soybeans. That's actually not the end of the world. Not, not that I'm happy about that, but that's the end of the world. If I'm giving, if we're giving, you know, a surplus soybean and, and, and surplus corn, not the end of the world. I'm not happy about it, but you know what? Let's make that secondary on our list. Primary on our list is we write a check for $50 billion to country X and say it's foreign aid. Well, it really isn't foreign aid. We give country X $50 billion. The oligarchs in that country whoever they may be, whether they're dictators or elected, whatever they are, they take $10 billion and then they buy $40 billion worth of weapons from us. Foreign aid in that case is a jobs program. Now all of a sudden, they buy these weapons. We have to build all equipment. It's not always weapons. I say it's weapons, but it could be anything from, from uniforms to um, meals ready to eat to boots. It could be anything, right? This doesn't have to be weapons, but it often is. And they're purchasing this equipment. Could be trucks, Humvees, old Jeeps, old tanks, insert thing here, old planes. They 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 buy these things. We make we make new ones to fill our to fill our coffers, or we make new ones for them. And it's a bunch of people with good paying jobs. It's a bunch of people paying their bills. 
It's a bunch of people putting their kids through school. Do you want to all of a sudden say all foreign aid goes away and literally put 100,000 people, 200,000 people, 300,000 people out of work tomorrow? We have to find a way to wean ourselves off of that, build up our economy so that we can absorb that. So we can absorb that. We'll give the soybeans away first. We'll worry about that, uh, that later. But it's the cash that I'm most concerned about. That's the big deal. How do we make that thing happen? Now, if we keep throwing all this money behind regimes, well, of course we're propping them up. Of course we're propping them up. It's part of a jobs program. It's keeping our economy moving. Anyway, let me grab a quick phone call. I'll get back on that in a second. I'm going to grab a call. We're going to stay in New York. I'm going to grab Dan, who wants to talk about Iran. Dan, how are you? Hello, Larry. How are you? What's going on? Not much. Um, just listening to the show. Um, um, so about this Iran thing. Okay. Um, where do you think it's Where do you think it's going to end up going? It's a good question. Um, but what I know is it's it's not going to go well. That's what I'll say. It's not going to go well. It's not going to fix anything, right? If you remember, this is back during uh, W Bush, uh, the the second Bush's uh, term, when we got Saddam mm-hmm. Hussein. When we got Saddam Hussein, they said, look, we got Saddam Hussein, yeah! And I thought, so what? Did terrorism go away? Did we leave the Middle East? Did we get safer? No. Then here comes Obama. Obama gets Osama bin Laden. Yay, we got Osama bin Laden, yay! Did terrorism go away? No. Did we get safer? No. Did we leave the Middle East? No. Then um, then um, Trump, he gets al-Baghdadi. Uh, we got him, yay! Did anything happen? No. We... This is no different than the drug war. You knock off Kingpin 1 and Kingpin 2 steps into his place and Kingpin 3 steps in. We got the number one guy and number two guy. There's another guy waiting. I never forget there was a a Netflix special. I don't know if any any of you guys have been watching Netflix uh, special. Uh, It was The Punisher. When I was a kid, I used to love The Punisher comic book. It was one of my favorite comic books. And they, they, they made The Punisher movie many times and it was terrible every time. And then they made a Netflix special, which I actually enjoyed. It was kind of brutal, but I didn't mind that. It was brutal. And there's one part to the Punisher series where the the the, the Punisher is talking to, to the bad guy, but they're friends at the time. I don't want to give it away in case somebody watches it. One, one of the bad guys at one point is a friend. And the friend says to Frank Castle, who's the Punisher, he says, guys, there's always more guys. He actually says that, like, there's always more guys. Like, I can always find more guys. And I thought the same thing about bad guys. We can always find bad guys. There's lots of them. And we kill one, and it doesn't mean anything. But the worst part about this last one, and then then the issue is, this last one was special, this general. And the reason why he was special is he was the first time that we had actually killed a uniformed member of our sovereign nation's government. We hadn't done that before. This was the first, I'm sorry, without a declaration of war. We had done it before, but not without a declaration of war against that country. This was a step over a line we hadn't done before. My worry is this was this just pushed it even further. That's why it can't end well. Now, will it have would it have been bad either way? Probably. I don't think this makes it much worse. It sounds horrible. But I don't think it makes it much worse. But it's worse because we've stepped over a line. The issue is you can't fight your way out of it. You can't kill your way out of it. So even though we killed this new general, 
on this is, is, is uh, old general, is Iran always going to say, okay, you've killed our general, we quit, we surrender, we're going to walk away. No, no, the reverse is true. They're going to go, now we got to get you back somehow. Now we're going to keep fighting even harder. Do I think Iran wants a war with us? Absolutely not. I actually don't think we want a war with Iran. I think we both want the same thing. And that is we want to retain what we have, which is proxy wars. The Iranians love the proxy wars. They fight with Hezbollah in Lebanon as they fight with their militias in in Iraq and Syria because then they can still yell death to America. They can still kill our people. They can still send our people off to die. They can still say that we're the evil ones so they can stay in power. We like it because we keep keep the military-industrial complex going. The empire keeps churning, right? We keep feeding, keep feeding without any actual chance of us on the homeland really taking any kind of hit. So I think what's going to happen with Iran? The same that would have happened if we didn't kill him. Maybe a little bit worse. Okay. You, you went okay. Um, that didn't sound good at all. You didn't like that answer. Oh, I did it because I think I think – how Trump campaigned on not wanting to get involved in any more Middle East entanglements. Yep. Look what he does. He go ahead and kills some foreign guy, and we're all supposed to think, oh, we got to send more of our military over there because, like you said, proxy war. Yes. We've been there for 20 years, Larry. We, we, have, no, we have no objective mission to, to be there anymore. Yeah, this it's is funny you brought this money. up. Since World War II, right? In World War II... And to a certain extent during Korea, to a certain extent during Korea, we actually had a mission, right? We were trying to beat the enemy, right? And so in World War II, we want to capture Tokyo or capture Berlin or beat the Germans or beat the Japanese or the Italians, whatever. In, in Korea, in theory, we wanted to beat the Koreans and it became Chinese. It became kind of muck, mucky. Vietnam, there was no – it wasn't like we couldn't physically win Vietnam, but no one knew how to win Vietnam because there was no actual strategy to win. There's no strategy to win the Middle East. When do we declare victory? You're totally right. And the problem is, you know, many people are either anti-Trump or, or, or pro-Trump. I'm neither. I just think he's made the same mistakes every other president made in the Middle East. You're right. He campaigned he was different. That was garbage. Obama campaigned he was different. That was garbage. Bush campaigned he was uniter. That was garbage. They were all wrong. They all fell into exactly the same thing. It isn't that I was I'm anti-Middle East war because of Trump. I'm anti-Middle East war, period. I was anti-Middle East war when it was Obama. I'm anti when, it, when, it, when it's Trump. They all make the same damn mistakes and think we can fight our way out of it. Your, your point's on the money. I wish Trump had done what he actually said, which is pull out. I wish he had done that. He campaigned on that. So did Obama. And they were both full of shit. Both of them were. And they should have just pulled out, right? And the funny thing is I bring this up often. I mean, your point's right in the money. If we just left, we literally just packed up and walked out, what I always hear is, Larry, if we do that, there'll be chaos. There's chaos now. Literally, there's chaos now. Is it better because we're there? No. But, Larry, if we leave, then they won't fight us over there. They'll fight us over here. Great. What evidence of that do you have? Exactly zero. Historically, I have an an example of that, and it's called Vietnam. We bombed, we dropped more bombs on Vietnam than we did on Germany and Japan combined. We fought there for 10 years, threw away 60,000 American actual lives, 
and broke at least another 200,000 American spirit, at least, went home after 10 years, lost that war, and where were all the Vietnamese people coming over to attack us and fight us? Nowhere. Never happened. In fact, 20 years later, they're our trading partner. Now, right. they're our ally. Now, we, we can buy clothes made in Vietnam now, or shoes from some uh, sweatshop or something. But whatever. I mean, we're, they're trading partners with us now. If we just walk over from the Middle East, maybe 20, 30 years from now, Iran and Iraq will be our trading partners too. Not just that. I want you to realize something. When, when mm. ISIS actually had a caliphate, if you remember for a short time, they were winning in, in, in um, Syria and Iraq. They were winning. Mm-hmm. And they had their own caliphate for a while. That was our safest time. Why? Those fighters had to actually govern. And they suck at governing because all they are is super status. That's all they are. So they had to take mm-hmm. all their fighters and put them on every street so that people would do whatever they said. And their governing sucked. And they couldn't do anything else because they had to govern. Then we said, in our wisdom, we can't have a caliphate in the Middle East. We have to stop it. And we fought it and broke them up. And what happened? They went back to fighting guerrilla warfare again. We, let, we took all those cops off the street and put them back into the, into the guerrilla warfare again. Wow, that was dumb. But we can't have a caliphate in, in the Middle East. Why not? We already have one. It's called Saudi Arabia. They're a caliphate. They're literally a kingdom. They're literally a Muslim kingdom. A caliphate is already in the Middle East. It's called Saudi Arabia, and they are our ally. Why do we care about a caliphate in the Middle East? It makes no sense. Mm. And at their height, ISIS fighters at their height, at their absolute peak, I'm not making this up, Dan, there were more New York City cops than there were ISIS fighters at their peak. Why are we afraid? Mm. And they're, what, 7,000, 8,000 miles away? How many miles they are? I think about 8,000. I think that's right. Seven or 8,000 miles away from us. Have no Navy, no Air Force, no weapons of mass destruction. Have to get through how many millions of other countries and people through it. Have to get through France and England who have nuclear weapons. How did they get to us? What are we afraid of? Why are we mm. so afraid of some group of people who just want to have their own caliphate and oppress their own people? Six to 7,000 miles away from us. I agree completely with everything you just said. I wish Trump had done what he said. I wish Obama had done what he said. I wish all of them had done what they, what they said, but they don't. They find a war. They like it. They get involved, and then we get stuck. And this is the question that I would ask all of those people who are so pro-war, who were like, we got to fight. We, these people died for nothing. They got us. They attacked our embassy, blah, 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 blah. My, my question to you would be, how many of our soldiers, Marines, and sailors have to die before your pride is satisfied? How many? A hundred? Thousands. Thousands? Ten thousand? How, many, how yeah. many Marines have to come back missing arms and legs or broken brains with TBI or PTSD that they may or may never recover from, may or may not never recover from? Uh, ever recover from how many if you tell me now we'll just line them up shoot the ones that have to die lop off the limbs that be amputated and smash the heads that be, the brains that be damaged and we'll then pull everybody home and it'll be over your pride can be satisfied their lives can be ruined and we can move on i want to bring them home if we bring them home then less people will die 
for sure less mm-hmm. Americans will die. But I don't know how long the Middle East civil war would have lasted. But I don't think it would have lasted 20 years we've made it last. I was didn't. I was last five or four, right? 61 to 65, is that right? So four or five years is how long I was lasted. So how long would theirs have lasted? Five years, 10 years, whatever. Less than the 20 years it's been running now. So either way, it has not been better with us there. And the, and the, the soldiers, Marines, and sailors that have died and been broken there, I'm not happy about. Because here's the worst part. People will still to this day say, say, we had to invade Iraq and Afghanistan because they killed 3,000 of us in 9-11. But none of, nobody will tell mm. you we lost 7,000 military members to avenge that. Somehow right. in our world, as we say we love our vets, we don't count them as dead. Mm. We don't. We don't count them as dead. We don't count them as broken. There's something else people don't realize. And I'm being a little bit morbid here, but you go back to World War II. For every two people wounded, one tended to die. So you mm-hmm. didn't have massive damage and people surviving. So if you were heavily wounded, you generally bled out on the field and you died. You didn't come home. Now, because of how good our technology is, you get blown to pieces. You still live. You come home. Now it's one in seven. That's six more people coming home broken. You might say, well, Larry, it's a good thing. It is a good thing. Unless you're that guy or gal who now feels like half a man or half a woman or feels broken or they've lost their brain, they've lost their brain function, and they come home a different person, now their family can't deal with them, now they're divorced, now they become, now they believe that they're not the, the same person they were and they're broken. Many of them wish they didn't come home. Many of them wish they died and bled out on the battlefield and they didn't. Mm-hmm. Why do you think so many of them commit suicide? 22 out of 100 Americans that commit suicide every day are veterans. That's 22%. The veteran population is less than 10% of our population. So twice the Mm -hmm. amount of people who commit suicide are veterans. I'm sorry, Dan, you got me going. I apologize. No, it's fine. So, Larry, personal question for you. Go ahead. Did you ever, when you were in the Marine, when you were in the Marine Corps, did you ever deploy overseas or not? I did. I deployed overseas, but I was never in a combat zone, so I never deployed to mm-hmm. a combat zone. I was in during three minor conflicts. I was in, I was, I was in the '80s, so I was only in during minor conflicts. I was in during Panama, which was a minor conflict. Mm-hmm. I was not in theater at that time, uh, but some friends I know went. I did not go. I was not in theater in Panama. Uh, I was in during the first Gulf War. I was scheduled mm-hmm. to ship in theater, but the war ended so fast, I never went. So I was never in theater mm-hmm. there. And there was what we thought what was not. It was incorrect. We thought it would be a combat zone, which was Tiananmen Square. I was in during Tiananmen Square in 89, and I was in theater then. We thought that was going to erupt into a hot war, maybe a Chinese civil war. It didn't. So that was the one time that I thought I was going to be in a combat theater, but I was never in a combat theater, but I was overseas several times. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Um, I'm an well, old man. I wasn't in during these new wars. You still served. I mean, I I'm did. Absolutely. I, I think as far as this Middle Eastern uh, quagmire bullshit goes, uh, you know, the Libertarian Party I know is, you know, non-interventionist, yep. anti-war. Yes. But the thing is, though, what 
what is our foreign policy as, on a platform if we have one? Because I've never really heard any libertarian. Yeah, no, no. I am happy to tell you, right? Remember something. Yeah. It isn't that libertarians are necessarily against force. Libertarians are against initiating force. And let me give you an example of what I mean by that. First off, we do not like to draft. So volunteer force. And what I get often from people is, Larry, what if you don't have enough people for your volunteer force? And my response is, if you can't get enough people to volunteer to defend your country, what kind of country do you have? And right. we've had the not a volunteer uh, force for, what, 50 years now? We've had plenty of people to fight more than one war. We're good. Volunteers absolutely work. Let people choose to join if and when they want to join. Now, let me give you an example of what I would have done if I was commander-in-chief after 9-11. Can I give you that example of what a libertarian would do? Yes. 9-11 happens. Boom. We realize it's, it's, uh, it's uh, Osama bin Laden, right? Okay, what are we yep. going to do? I would have taken all of our special forces, all of them, and focused them on getting Osama bin Laden. All of them. No massive invasion. All my Navy SEALs, all my force recon, all my airborne units, everything we got, every, all my drones, whatever I got at that point, it's all focused. All my CIA assets, all of them are focused on getting Osama bin Laden and, and whoever his lieutenants are, all of them. We focus on that. Most experts would tell you that within about two years, we would have got him. Now, I don't know that for mm -hmm. sure, but if you ask most experts, they would agree, yeah, we would have got him in about two years. We would have got Osama and all his people and either captured or killed them, whatever, brought them to justice, whatever way it's appropriate, it's over. And if we had to kill okay. people or, or attack people who were defending him to get him, then we have to attack or kill people to get him. That is, the, you can use force when you're attacked. You can use force in defense. Of course you can. In, a, a, in, my, in my world, right, if, if I'm commander-in-chief, my military focuses on three things. Number one, I think you have to have a nuclear deterrent. I believe in that. Many libertarians do not. I do. You have to have a nuclear deterrent. A nuclear deterrent does stop war. How do we know that? We never, we never went to war with the USSR. Right? MAD worked. And I'm okay with that. Keep a nuclear arsenal as a deterrent. Absolutely. Never first strike as a deterrent. Second, I want cyber ops, cyber ops, cyber ops like there's no tomorrow. That is the warfare mm. of the future. That is how you attack nations. That is how you attack economies. That is how you, you attack grids. And we are behind in that completely because we want to build tanks and aircraft carriers, which are virtually useless. Right, so we don't. I don't want that. I want cyber, 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 cyber. Like there's no tomorrow. And last, special forces units that go in, get bad guys, and get out. Units that go in, mm. blow shit up, and get out. That's what I want. We don't have to invade countries. We go in, get the bad guys, get rid of them. And the lesson becomes: just don't be a bad guy, and we don't kill you. That becomes a lesson. Mm. Don't attack us, and we don't attack you. But Larry won't be able to invade a country. Good. For what possible reason could we ever want to invade a country today? And I would ask anyone who thinks I'm crazy, please name one country that's about to invade us. None. There is exactly zero threat of us being invaded. Zero. Not minor. Zero. No country mm. is going to invade us. And now for the foreseeable future. If that ever changes, then I would change what my military should be. But now for the mm -hmm. next at least 30 years, 
There's not going to be a tank battle. Our tanks destroy every tank on the planet. That's why no one fights with tanks anymore. Our military is amazing. We kick ass everywhere. That's why no one fights us like that. I don't want to invade a country. For what reason would we need that? So special forces, cyber ops, nuclear, we attack when attacked, and we attack those people and take them out. Did I answer your question? Of course, always. Yes. That's what I think a libertarian president would think about when it comes to military. Those three forces to be able to counterattack and attack cyber, counterattack and attack nuclear, counterattack and attack special forces. No need to invade a country ever. Never, ever need to invade a country. But they're getting ready to attack us. Great. Cyber attack their grid, knock out all their energy, knock out all their factories, trash their port system. They're going nowhere. I don't have to invade. They're done. And as soon as they say mm-hmm. we surrender, stop. Let them go. Go back to work. Let's start trading. Let's start trading. Hand over your bad guys. We either put them in jail or execute them, whatever is the appropriate thing to do, and let's start trading again. Well, how much how much freaking money have we spent on these damn Middle Eastern quagmires since 2001? Billions upon yeah. billions upon billions. <laughs> yes. I mean, and you yes. think that and you think that you think our resources could have been put somewhere else? For more efficiency. I think back in the American people's pockets so they could spend their own money. That would be nice. I know it sounds crazy. That would be nice. Yes, that would be that nice. Would be. I'm okay but, with that. Or paying off our debt also would be nice. Any of the, I could think of many w- ways to deal with that. Many ways, absolutely. Not, not, not having to pay for all of the medical bills of all the veterans that we've crushed. Yeah, I'm in. All of those are good answers. All right, my friend Dan, I'm going to let you run. I appreciate the yep. phone call. Always. All right, have a good one. All right, I'm sorry. He got me, Dan got me going. All good, though. I'm happy. I'm going to grab another call if I could. I'm going to North Carolina. I'm going to grab uh, Eric. Eric, how are you? I'm doing well, Larry. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm sorry you got me yapping on uh, the military-industrial complex and foreign wars. Oh, it was a great conversation. And actually, before I ask my question, the one, the one weapon that uh, we didn't that we're not using is our culture. Oh, my God, yes. You are exactly correct. Yes, Eric, well done. I mean, before we ever send a troop over, we should be sending Colonel Sanders over there and making sure that they're eating our chicken. (laughs) I love it, yes. I got to tell you, you know, stronger than any bomb is our culture. You know, Ronald Reagan, while he was still bombing people, at least Ronald Reagan had some very good rhetoric. He was my first commander in yes. chief, and I w- and I and I was mesmerized mm-hmm. by him as a youngster. He was my first commander in chief as a marine, and I was mesmerized by him. And the things he said, like you know, we want America to be the the shining city on the hill. Yeah, yes, uh, he's right. Absolutely. I want that. Absolutely. I so want that. Right? We're, I we're totally not that, agree. But I want to be that. I want people to look and go, why can't we be like America? I want the rest of the world to think that. Now they think, God, I don't want to be like America. I want them to think exactly. they want to be like us. I want us to be the example of happiness and freedom and commerce and growth and education and innovation and all those cool things. But something else of mercy, of yes. compassion. Of love. We're not loved today. No. We are not loved today globally because we send our guns first. Yes, absolutely. 100%. We want to we really fix to... North Korea. I have an idea. Open up trade mm-hmm. 100%. Do whatever you want. Anyway, you want to trade, guys. Whatever you want. Totally agree. Yep. 
totally agree. Cuba too. Mm-hmm. Cuba too. Absolutely. But well, let me get want. back to my uh, to my uh, comment slash question. Okay. And it goes back to the beginning of your show, and you were talking about uh, libertarian candidates and how we want to shut this down and shut that down, and mm-hmm. and you know we want to change America and all of that stuff. Yep. But I want to remember the last two people who won the presidency. Okay. And this applies to any candidate. Okay. But the last two presidents are the two strategies that work with the American people. You had Obama, who was hope and change, mm-hmm. and you had Trump, which largely was fear. Shutting down parts of the government isn't going to be a successful campaign strategy. Well, you- But... You can say that you're going to shut it down, but you put hope and change behind it. You want to get rid of occupational licensing? Don't talk about getting rid of occupational licensing. Talk about creating opportunities. Mm, I like it. No, no, I I agree. There were were two things that I think when you did the hope and change and the fear. The hope Mm -hmm. and change was hope and change for us. The fear Mm -hmm. was fear against them. Right, but absolutely. The, but the common absolutely. thing I think you find, and this is since 2008, and uh, most people I don't think get this. Most I don't think get this. And that is, there is one big advantage the Libertarian Party does have, and that is America has been begging for something different since 2008. Right. That's clear, right? Since 2008, it's been clear. The only reason why oh, Obama beats Clinton in the Democratic primary is because Hillary was, and to be fair, if, if anybody likes Hillary, I'm not trying to be mean, but she was clearly the poster child for the establishment. I mean, she was the yeah. poster child. For, even if you're a Democrat listening, please don't be mad at me. I'm not trying to hammer. I'm just saying she was absolutely the poster child for the establishment. Barack Obama, mm-hmm. compared to her, I mean, he's still establishment guy too, but compared to her, he was a radical within the Democratic Party. He was not that. And the Democrats Correct. flock to him. And of course, the, mm-hmm. he beats the other guy who's, you know, not see, who's seen as, you know, the other, other side. Look, McCain was also considered a radical, wasn't he? For Republicans. So was Sarah for Palin. Republican, absolutely. So was Sarah yeah. Palin. These were like radicals for them. And they also won mm-hmm. the nomination. I mean, the country's been, been, been clamoring for the non, you know, established person since 2008. That was true in, in mm-hmm. 2012. And that was true in 2016. Again, you look at Bernie compared to Hillary. Again, Hillary loses again because she is literally the poster child for the establishment. Bernie at that point was seen again as the rebel, right? As far as Democrats go, right? He was seen as the rebel. And this is why most people don't get this. A lot of people who initially supported Bernie, the Bernie bros, as they call themselves, Mm -hmm. self-identified, about a third of them went to Trump. After the after Bernie went away, now people say, "How in the world could people who supported Bernie go to Trump?" That seems impossible. And I say, "No, the people who were supporting Bernie were simply supporting the rebel. They didn't know what his yes. policies were. They didn't care about his policies. And when they went to Trump, they didn't know what his policies were there either. And they didn't care. <laughs> they were just like, "He's not the establishment, so I'm that guy." Right. That was it." Yes. And I think people are still doing that, and that I think that aspect is an advantage the Libertarian Party has. And the example I'll give you is there was a photo that was on my Facebook page many years, uh, two years ago now, many years, mm-hmm. two years ago is many years, uh, two years ago when I was <laughs> running, and it was a picture of a guy outside of his house in upstate New York. 
and he had four uh, flags in front of his house, or posters, signs in front of his house. One was a Confederate flag. The second was the yellow don't tread on me snake flag, the Gadsden flag. The third was a Larry Sharp for governor flag. And the fourth was a Trump 2016 flag. And when you see that, people go, what the hell is that? And I was like, that makes total sense. In that guy's mind, all four of those are symbols of rebellion. Yep. That's all it is. Does he really mm-hmm. want the South to rise again? It's upstate New York. That's not what he cares about, right? He sh- no. his, for him, that flag is a rebel flag, a sign of rebellion. Does he even understand well, that the, the Gaston flag is now a libertarian symbol? Probably not. He just knows it's don't tread on me because I'm a rebel, right? He yep. In New York State, I was the rebel vote in New York State. So Larry Sharp, he's the rebel. And Trump was the rebel in 2016. Right. So rebel, mm-hmm. rebel, rebel. I, I sound like the Hamburglar. Rebel, rebel, rebel. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what he wants. That's what we all want. I think there is an advantage, but your point is a valid one. It's how we say it. Do we just yell, I'm going to blow exactly. stuff up? Or do we right. either give them fear of the other or do we give them hope for ourselves? So exactly. what, I don't know. We've Where's your head? working on our messaging. We've got to strengthen our messaging and make sure that people understand it and how they're going to benefit from it. That's my ultimate point. I, I think you're right. And I when I hear libertarian rhetoric, rhetoric it's very mm-hmm. often things like, my rights, my rights. In fact, that while that's an amazing concept, it doesn't sound good. It sounds selfish. Right. So I did- You should be saying your rights. Actually, what I would say is everybody's rights. All of our rights. Well, that's true too. Right? Yeah, even I will, better. I will often say that. Right? Uh, people talk about rights and I'll say, I want everyone to have all of their rights. All of your rights matter. That's how I yeah. try to speak instead of saying, my rights, my rights. It's all of your rights matter all the time, right? All of your rights. And yep. I was doing an event. Uh, this is last night, I think. Uh, yes. No, two nights ago. Sorry, two nights ago. I was in Oneonta in New York. I think it was Oneonta. I'm pretty sure. Um, mm-hmm. And someone gave me one of those yellow shirts with the snake on it. It said, don't tread on me. And I put the shirt right. up front and I said, I want to change one thing. Don't tread on anyone. Absolutely. And that was what I wanted to say. Don't tread on anyone. And then the next day, I was in Schoharie County in New York. And over half of the people there, about 40 people in a room, give or take, about half of them were there because they cared about the Second Amendment. Big 2A supporters, right? We're going to have uh, mm-hmm. sanctuary counties in New York State. We're going to copy the Virginia model and all that stuff. And I'm supporting them. Yes, absolutely. Let's do it. I'm in. Let's do it. And I said, people often tease me. And they say, well, Larry, you don't you don't even own a firearm. I said, yeah, I live in New York City. I don't want to go to jail. So, of course, I don't own a firearm, right. right? But I don't own a firearm, but I support the Second Amendment. I don't vape, but I support vaping. I don't smoke weed, but I support, can- I, I support uh, uh, legalizing cannabis. I, I didn't go through the family court system. I had to get divorced here in New York, but I still wanted to fix the New York State family court system. It doesn't have to affect me to care about it. And I say that no, often. Absolutely. Your rights matter because one day it is going to affect me. They are going to come after me for something. And man, I hope that you are there for me like I was there for you. And when they come after me, I hope you stand up and go, no. What Larry wants to do is it matters. His rights matter. Get the cuffs off him. That's what I hope happens. 
Because the, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but there's the old story from the 1940s, and there's a Norwegian Lutheran priest, mm-hmm. and he's watching everything that goes on in Europe, mm-hmm. and the Nazis are going after the Jews, mm-hmm. and the, the Norwegian uh, uh, priest sits back on his heels and says, I'm a Lutheran. That's not my problem. Yeah, he's safe, right? Then the the Lutheran priest sees them go, uh, sees the Nazis going after the Catholics, mm-hmm. and says, "I am a Lutheran priest in Norway, not my problem." Mm-hmm. Then he, the Nazis are in Norway, and they're starting to go after the Lutheran priests. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the Lutheran priest throws up his arms and says. Who's going to help me? Yep. yep. But he never helped anybody before they got to him. Yep. So he couldn't get help. If I remember, it's, it's, the it's exact something same like thing. when they came when they came for the communists, I said nothing because I wasn't a communist. When they Correct. came for the Jews, I said nothing because I wasn't a Jew. When they Correct. came for the Catholics, I said nothing because I wasn't a Catholic. And when they Correct. came for me, there was no one left to say anything. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So I want them to come for no one. How about that? Exactly. How totally about agree. They come for no one so that they never come for me too. So they come exactly. for nobody. Not me, not my but kids. But we have to stand up for people's rights that we don't necessarily utilize because they will stand with us when they try to come after our rights. Yeah, you know, but, and there's, there's, yeah. A, there's a second piece of this, though, and this is just a human piece, Eric. It's a human piece, and that mm-hmm. is they may not stand up for me, but I still should have stood up for them anyway. Well, of course, because it's the right. right thing to do. Yeah, we should do the right thing. I mean, and this is the thing. It's funny. When I, I did several debates when I ran for governor, I think four total, I think, three or four, I forgot, actually. And every debate mm-hmm. I did, I did with no notes. And I just did cold. And I never worried. People said, why are you not worried? I said, well, well, I know my stuff, so I'm not that concerned. But there's something else. I'm not worried about losing a debate because I know I always have the moral high ground. Because being a libertarian means I never regret forcing anyone to do anything. And I never want to come after anybody. Mm -hmm. So in any question asked, I always have the moral high ground. And if I'm debating Democrats or Republicans, they almost never have the moral high ground. Almost never. Right? right? Because they're always about, you know, my king is the right king. Your king is the bad king. But we still need to Mm -hmm. have kings. Right? We got to have kings. Exactly. You just got to have my king. Well, I I saw someone once said, hashtag my swamp is better than your swamp. I love that. I like that one. It's a great hashtag. My swamp's better than your swamp, right? So now when the Democrats win the presidency, it's their swamp. Republicans win the presidency, it's their swamp. And that's the good swamp because it's my swamp. I love it. Oh. All right, Eric, thank you so much for the call, brother. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I hope everyone listening today becomes a Patreon supporter of yours. Yes. And stands behind your show 100%. I'm a Patreon supporter. I donate every month to you. 
And I hope everyone else listening does the same. Oh, my God. I need more people to call. Yes, he is correct. You guys want to support this show? I should have paid that guy. Yes, head on over to patreon.com slash sharpway. You know, people have been talking about this show in a very specific way. They, they, they often complain. And they say, Larry, how come you don't have this libertarian guy on? How come you don't have this libertarian guy on? How come you don't have that libertarian guy on? And there's a reason why I don't. And that is... There are 50 bazillion libertarian podcasts that have all those libertarian guys on them. You don't require another one. That's not what I'm trying to achieve. What I'm trying to achieve is two things. One, people who aren't always libertarian to come on. If you notice, I have a a guest, then not, then not again, then a guest, then a couple of guests, then not, back and forth. My hope is if I have a guest on who's not a straight libertarian, he will bring other people to the show. And then next week, what can I do? I get to preach to them. And maybe they'll come over. I open the phone line to them. And maybe they'll call. And maybe they'll hear someone ask the question that they wanted to ask. Or maybe they'll ask the question to me. And maybe I'll draw them in. This show is made to draw people in. That's why it's a call-in show. All the other podcasts aren't call-in shows. They just We call in and we talk. I want people to know that whatever question you have, we can talk about it. So, Eric, I want to thank you so much for supporting us. Thank you for that plug. I hope others will follow what you're doing. Absolutely. You have a great night and have a have a great show. You too. Have a good one. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. So if you want to join us, please feel free. Give us a call. 573-427-5673. Talked a lot about the military-industrial complex, how the entire system works. Some of you may not even realize that when it comes to that, that, that piece, when you're trying to build tanks or build uh, planes or you know any of those things, they, they put this out in different states so that each state gets a job here and a job there and a job here and a job there. This is part of pork barrel politics. This is an important piece in getting work and jobs in our nation. It isn't just end it. It is we have to build this up so that we can actually make sure people still have jobs and aren't just fighting us. We have to, exactly as Eric talked about, we have to show them that there is some value to this, that they'll be able to grow from this, to be better from this, to still make that money, to do all those things. All right. The, uh, excuse me, the, the next piece I want to talk about is going to be the prison industrial complex, and that's tough. Let me grab a call before I jump into that because that's going to go on for a while. Let me grab that first. We're going to grab Hannah. She is from Staten Island, New York. Staten Island. How are you, Hannah? Good. How are you? What's going on? Hi, Larry. Um, so I, I, I'm a, I guess not a long-time listener, but um, I, uh, I always appreciate listening to you. Um, I always wondered uh, who you're like, political figures that you look up to are good good question and do you think that uh we will ever have a libertarian president because i know you mentioned before this is what a libertarian president would do um Um, i'll answer both of those questions and the i'll ask the last one first because it's easier sure um i think yes and if we don't um the country is going to collapse into a fascist state Oh, boy. Yes. One of two things. We will either have a libertarian president eventually or the nation will collapse into a fascist state. 
And the fascist state will not necessarily come from the right. It will come from the right or the left. It doesn't matter which one. Because if we don't find a libertarian answer, the divisions between the country, the people in the country will just get deeper. And as divisions get deeper, remember, people who are afraid make bad decisions. People, groups of people who are afraid make massively bad decisions and to include their leaders. They cry either for socialism or they cry for a strong man, both end in a dictatorship, right? There are different ways to getting there, but they both end in dictatorship. So either we're going to go socialism, which will eventually become dictator, or straight dictator, either one. So if we don't find a libertarian answer or a liberty movement answer, that is our future. I hope I don't see that. I hope we find a libertarian president who will eventually show people there's a third way, a real way, that you can be as liberal or as conservative as you want to be. Just don't force your views on others. If you can just do that, we can find a way to live together, to survive together, to respect the diversity, to actually love a diversity, and not either as the right often does ignore it or the left does force it, both the wrong answer. We just want to let people be who they are. So I think, yes, we will. If not, not looking good for our country. And if our country goes into any type of civil uh, disorder, it will be horrible. This isn't North versus South anymore in our country. We are balkanized. I don't know if people know what that means. Balkanized, the, the Balkans, those of you who don't know, is basically the area of Southern Central Europe where the, the former Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, right, Romania. Right. Exactly, those areas. What happened in those areas from the old uh, Muslim conquest days, most of the cities were filled with Muslims because those people came in, controlled the area, and they ran the countryside from the cities. So a lot of people became Muslims. And the Muslim rules were very similar or simple that they didn't force you to convert. But if you did, you got a bunch of benefits like tax benefits, ownership benefits, things like that. So many local people converted and became Muslim to get the benefits. It was common. So that happened in the cities usually. So when the Yugoslavian civil war broke out, it was basically city versus rural. It was horrible and very balkanized. We had the same situation in America. It's not red versus blue. It's urban versus rural. The cities of the South are blue. The rural areas of the North are red. So if we go into civil discord, it is, it's going to be bad because it's just city versus rural. That's not going to end well. So I have to say, yes, there'll be a libertarian president because I don't want to think what a civil, uh, you know, any kind of civil disobedience will actually wind up becoming in the long run. Did I answer the second yeah, part of the question? Like a did I answer the second Thank part of the that. question? Yeah. Yes. Yes, Good. you did. Yeah. Now. Thank you. The first part. The funny thing is I didn't come here to the libertarian movement through politics. I actually came here through business. And it's going to sound odd, but I did. I began to understand the ideals of libertarianism through a guy named Robert Ringer. Robert Ringer is actually a business consultant. And I was a business consultant for years. I still am. That's what I do for a living. My day job is a business consultant. I, tra- I consult with law firms, uh, tech firms, uh, the city departments. I teach leadership. Um, I help people with sales, networking. I teach some colleges. That's what I do. So I was doing that for years. And in the early 2000s, I got hooked on a guy named Robert Ringer. Robert Ringer talked a lot about how to change your brand, how to act, value relationships, which is libertarian free market stuff, how to build your business based upon value relationships, things of that sort. Now, Robert Ringer is, a, is, an, is an objectivist. He's a big Ayn Rand fan. 
I'm not an objectivist, but he is. And that's what got me to move towards moving towards things like reading uh, Atlas Shrugged, um, reading Fountainhead. That was because of what he was saying to do because I was following his blog and that kind of thing. So that got me into that world. But I never considered myself an objectivist, but I was kind of already thinking that way, if that made any sense. Right. By yeah. the time 2012 came, I didn't care about politics. I thought they all suck, hate them all, don't care, couldn't hear any of them, just run my business and hope they don't hammer me too badly. They just get in my way. I can't stand them. But then I heard Gary Johnson speak. And of all the people who, I, who had talked in the past, the only guy that I could actually hear was Gary Johnson because he was a businessman. He was an entrepreneur like me. The last guy I had actually heard was Ross Perot, also a businessman. So I yeah. didn't really hear people. I heard Gary Johnson. But when Gary Johnson actually was speaking, I didn't know what he was talking about. I mean, I didn't know what libertarians were. I was like, what are these guys, librarians? They sound smart. <laughs> I had no idea what this was, right? I didn't know. But I had been burned in the past by people I had voted for and believed they were going to be awesome and great. So I actually didn't, I didn't become a libertarian right away. I actually went to Libertarian Party meetings, and I met regular uh -huh. people here in Queens where I live and also Manhattan where I work, and I joined the local parties. And that's how I became a Libertarian, by hearing Gary Johnson speak. Gary Johnson is what I believe to be uh, an instinctual Libertarian. People get mad at him and don't like him he didn't do that well or whatever. I love Gary Johnson, will always love Gary Johnson no matter what. He is the guy who got me. Without him, I'm not a Libertarian. I am all about him. If he ran again, I'd support him again. If you're listening, Governor, I'm still there. You want to go again? Well, go again. I'm in. Um, I would totally support I voted, him. I voted Johnson Weld as well. Absolutely. I, I would vote for Gary Johnson again in a heartbeat. I still love him. I don't care what anybody says. If he, if he runs again, I'm in. I'm behind him. I'll raise money for him. I'm in. Um, nice. But there are many reasons why. He's instinctual libertarian. He told me a story once, which was which was very strong, which was very powerful for me. He said when he was governor of New Mexico and he had to appoint judges, he would interview them. And when he interviewed me, he would say something like this. He'd say, okay, I'm going to ask you a question. Let's say the state legislature passes a law that says if a 17-year-old is convicted of graffiti, the sentence is mandatory death. You must have a mandatory death sentence for any um, – 17-year-old convicted of graffiti. That's a law in the books, New Mexico. Now it comes in front of you. You get that. The jury comes back, guilty of graffiti. You are now required to sentence him to death. What do you do? And well, he said... Good question, right? Yes. And he said, as long as that judge didn't say, I would sentence him to death, he would consider him on putting on the court. If he said, the law is the law, put him to death, no thank you. That is what I want to hear. Like he, but he said people would say things like, well, I'd resign. I'd retire. Okay, that's an acceptable answer. That's acceptable. Or I would find a way to look through the law. He, this happened, he said, too. Look through the law to find a loophole so I don't have to do that. Or I would find a way to redo it or change it. I would not do that. I would find a legal way to, to get around that or just ignore it or re resign. Any of those in his eyes were the right answer. And it wasn't that he was reading, you know, Hayek at that time. He just knew that was wrong. That's the kind of man that I look up to. That's, the, that's why he does 
he is a guy that I would support again in a heartbeat, even though I know people got mad at him. I don't care. I would support him again. If he was the president yeah. now, we wouldn't be bombing Iran. We wouldn't be bombing in Iraq. We wouldn't even be in the Middle East at all right now if he was president right now. We wouldn't be doing any of that stuff. We'd be trading like there's no tomorrow right now. None of that stuff would be happening. And he wouldn't be getting impeached. They would, none of that stuff would be happening right now. So if, if he was president, we'd be better off. So I'm still a Gary Johnson fan. But now when we go back in the past, the problem is there are certain people who I do respect to look up to. But when I say it, people get mad at me all the time. I'm a huge Gandhi fan. I love Gandhi. And people say, what are you, a socialist? I have an idea. Shut up. That's my response to you. You're going to shit on Gandhi? Shut up. Gandhi was one of the best people on the planet. Gandhi thought socialism was good because his alternative was Imperial Britain. That's all he knew. Socialism looked good to him when your option is the boot of the British government, which is literally executing your people in the streets with machine guns. Yeah, I, I get where you're going. But why I love Gandhi and still do is because Gandhi said some very important things. He said things like, yes, they may imprison me. Yes, they may beat me. Yes, they may kill me. But then they will have my broken body. They will still not have my compliance. How powerful is that? And he yeah, didn't just say definitely. that stuff from behind some screen. He didn't say that stuff from some desk. He literally was imprisoned. He literally was beaten. Literally. And when yeah. the British government looked at him and said, you don't expect us to just leave India, do you? He said, of course. When 500 million, at the time there were 500 million Indians, when 500 million Indians simply refuse to accept your rule, you will realize it's futile and you will walk away. And when you walk away, you will walk away as friends. Come on, who says that? Who does that? Who believes in nonviolence that much? Who will sacrifice themselves? When he was, when, when he was interviewed and, they, and during World War II, he said, your nonviolence, you know, they said, your nonviolence couldn't work against a guy like Hitler, could it? He said, not without defeats. We'd have lots of defeats. Don't you have defeats in your war? Don't you lose some battles? Yeah, we'd lose some too. But in the long run, we win. Yeah. And when we win, we win as friends through peace, not through war. That's a guy I can get behind. He's so just fine. Okay. I'll, I'll talk about his politics later. We'll fix that later. But the point is the guy <laughs> didn't believe in, in, in the empire. And he also said something else. He said, local people will always prefer their own bad government to the good government of an alien power. This is literally the, the, the libertarian concept of localized control as smaller government. Yes, some small governments will be bad, but they'll be our governments and we can make our own mistakes and we can fix them and we can make things better because it's about us. Local people tend to know better. And if they don't, then they pay the price for themselves or they make things by themselves and others can copy and follow. And when he had a massive country to deal with, he dealt with it. So anyway, Gandhi is a is a, someone who I uh, adored. Still, okay. I, I would like to be more like him. Gary Johnson is another one who I think is great. So this is some people. I hope that was that clear for you or no? Yeah. Yeah. So basically you but you really had more influences from business entrepreneurs. I than did. You did politicians. Well, people often say, Larry, how in the world can you be so good at explaining these ideas so fast? I came on the scene in 2016 with a three-week campaign 
to to try to be the the VP nominee for the party in 2016, I wanted it to be a Johnson Sharp ticket. Didn't make it. Lost by 32 votes. Only 32 votes. I'm not counting. Hannah, stop. T- Why are you saying 32 votes, Hannah? I didn't say anything. You said 32 votes. I didn't. All right. Anyway, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not set. <laughs> my, my point. Well, how being, do you how do you feel? Well, um, how do you feel about Weld uh, primarying Donald Trump? Sorry that that I just threw that in there. No, no worries. Uh, let me. I'll finish my point. And I'll cover that. My the reason why yeah. it was so easy for me to be, to get into this is I was already teaching these things in business. I was teaching libertarian concepts and ideas as post-industrial leadership in the business world. People often say, how can we know if libertarians can run anything? They don't run anything. And I say, yes, they do. They run all the most successful businesses on the planet. All of them. They all run it with post-industrial leadership. Freedom, allowing people to experiment, allowing people to be their own, not punish them automatically, no zero tolerance rules. Yeah, localized control. Yes, that's what all, all the uh, best business owners do. So that's why I was able to do it. Your question Great about uh, Weld primarying uh, uh, Trump, good luck yeah. is all I can say. Yeah. Uh, good luck. Right. I, I don't, I'm not sure what he's trying to achieve. Um, yeah. I, I don't think if you, if you look at it, um, it would take – maybe he's hoping for a miracle. My gut tells me. Here's what my gut tells me. I think that his team believed that impeachment would really hurt Trump badly. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. Well, I they think it's believed. having like the opposite effect. I yes, feel. I think they were wrong, but I think they believed that. I think they. I think they thought, "Don't worry, he'll be impeached. It'll beat him up badly. By the time the primary comes, he'll be weak." you'll be able to oh, beat boy. him up. Maybe he'll drop out. There'll be nobody left. It'll be you. I think his <laughs> team thought something like that, which at the time, if you realize what they've been through with Clinton and such, it's not, it's not stupid. That, that could be a smart thing to, to, to believe. It didn't happen, but I mean, they were wrong, but I think it could have been that. I shouldn't say they were wrong. That might not have been what they're thinking. That's total speculation on my part. So I think it was something like that. Or... He thought, you know what? New Hampshire has an open primary. Many of you don't know this. Anyone can vote in the primary. So you can be a Democrat or independent and vote in the Republican primary and vote against Trump if you want to. You can do that. I think his team also hoped there'd be enough never Trumpers and enough Democrats who were so angry that they would not care about New Hampshire and instead just want to vote against Trump, and he could pull Democrats and independents over and have them vote so that he could do well in New Hampshire or even win in New Hampshire. And if he does well or wins in New Hampshire, then guess what he can do? Drop out, head on over to the Libertarian Party, and say, look, guys, I beat Trump in New Hampshire. Look at me. So I think that's something else he could do in theory. I don't know if either of yeah. those things are true or he thought that. I don't know. Um, it's not like he consulted me and asked my opinion, so I don't know. But I'm, I'm totally speculating on what, on what may be happening. What I think will happen is I think he will have some impact. I don't know how much, but I think there are enough people in New Hampshire who don't like Trump who will vote for Weld, and he'll make some impact. I don't know what that will be. The question is how does he spin it? How does Trump spin it? How does the media spin it, right? And will it affect right. Trump at all? Now, the issue is... Yeah, because he's not getting that much coverage, though, Bill Weld. He's know? not. 
But I think he's physically yeah. traveling in New Hampshire now. So while he may not be getting national coverage, he doesn't need it right now. He needs New Hampshire coverage. Right. Because if, yeah. he, if he's able to make impact in New Hampshire, then that will get national coverage, right? I yeah. mean, imagine. I mean, this is – it would take a miracle for this to happen. But imagine if he beats if he beats Trump in New Hampshire. That's national news everywhere. He's 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 well known. He's he's famous overnight. I mean, it is a gamble, but man, if that gamble pays off, I mean, he's the magic man. Well, I guess only time will tell, right? That's it. If if it actually does pay off, he's the magic man. So I don't know. It could be that. I I, I don't know. So did I answer your question? Yes, thank you so much. Great conversation. Thank you. Awesome. Sorry for taking up all the time. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that this, this is a call-in show. You're supposed to be talking to me. That's the whole point, right? Yes. All righty. Thank Have you. A good night. Thank you for uh, all the shows and keep going. All righty. Have a good one. Thank all right. You. If Bye. you want to join the program, you can five seven three four two seven five four six three. Give us a call. Let us know that you want to be on. Happy to chat with you. I want to go on to the prison industrial complex. A little bit off, off of the beginning, but the first hour I, I spoke heavily about military industrial. Now it's about prison industrial. There are so many people right now with criminal records that there are law firms that basically one of the things they do is just try to get records discharged, expunged, certificates of good conduct, all to, that's, that's their job. That's all they do to get these things expunged because people have been trouble getting jobs. It's so bad that the military has lowered its standards. There used to be if you had a felony conviction, you couldn't get in the military. Not anymore. They need bodies and so many people have convictions. Not just that. You have companies now that have decided they will not do a background check. They won't do it. And their logic is, now I don't know how legally this is going to fly in the future, but this is what's happening now. If I do a background check and I find something bad, I can't hire them because if I do hire them, I get sued. Why'd you hire the guy who did this thing, right? But if I don't do a background check, I didn't know, so it's not my fault this guy did something bad. And I remember years ago, I was asking people about this. Literally, these were franchise McDonald's owners at the time. This is years ago. I was saying, you don't want to do a background check? He said, no. I said, what if the guy's a convicted felon? He goes, I'll take him. He said, what? He goes, it's that or I don't have anybody in my store. And I said, wow. This is when the economy was booming in 2006, 5, and 7 when the money was going all over the place and, and, and jobs were everywhere. People were hopping jobs, changing jobs every year because the jobs were so were everywhere. People weren't working at McDonald's. And, and this guy's McDonald's. should say not at McDonald's. This guy's McDonald's. He was like, I can't get bodies. That's starting to happen now when it comes to criminal records. Why do you care? Because if it hasn't happened to you, it's happened to someone next to you, close to you, care about, or is about to. The prison industrial complex is massive. And it's massive for many reasons. Reason number one, it's a moneymaker. It is a moneymaker using law enforcement as a profit center has been a thing for decades, and it still is now. You find people who are literally saying things like, we have to fund this thing. How do we fund it? I know. We'll fund it with fines and fees. 
fines and fees, not taxes, because taxes sound evil. So we'll make up rules and raise the prices so we can pay for something. So we've just decided that we're purposely going to make laws to hurt people and take their money to pay for something. That's the kind of system you have when you have a prison industrial complex. But that's a small piece. There's a whole lot more. That's just one piece. What about when you have a system that is all about, I mean all about, civil asset forfeiture? Many of you know about this. Some of you don't. Cop drives up behind you, pulls you over, looks into the car, says, hey, sir, ma'am, do you have a large sum of money on you all right now? And you go, yeah, I actually do, officer. I want to be clean because I've done nothing wrong. I have $6,000 on me because um, I just cashed my check. I was going to loan my cousin some money. And in this case, that's true. He goes, great. May I see it? Great. He takes it, confiscates it, says, have a nice day, walks away. He does not have to arrest you. He does not have to charge you. He can just take that money and say he believes it was from a drug uh, trade or, or part of the drug war. And he takes your money. You don't have to go fight to get your money back. Again, literally, there are uh, law firms that their job, a big chunk of their job is trying to get money back from the government because it takes so much. This is a complex. This is a racket. This is people making money from fines and fees, people making money from civil asset forfeiture. Not just that. Now you have a system to where people are making money on prison labor. Now, officially in New York State, particularly, there are no private prisons officially. But there are. Why? Because private companies get to use the labor. I think it's 17 cents an hour or something like that. They use the labor. So you basically have the equivalent of slave labor. That's 17 cents. It's not officially slave labor, but it's basically slave labor down prison. It's a racket. On top of that, you've got to do things like support these prisoners. In New York State, it can cost anywhere from fifty to $70,000 for one year of someone in prison. Someone's got to buy the shoes and the shirts, and that's all crony capitalism. That's my cousin, my friend, my buddy who worked for, who I know now, and boom, all of a sudden they're making money. A whole lot of issues here with the prison industrial complex. I know people want to talk about it, I'm sure. I know they do. But, uh, excuse me. Let me uh, let me grab some phone calls if I can. Uh, I'm going to grab one regarding bail reform. Since I do have bail reform, talking about the prison industrial complex, let me grab that. I'm going to grab uh, Stephen in, again, New York, talking about bail reform. Stephen, how are you? Hey, how's it going? It's going. What's going on, my friend? Talk to me. Yeah, I'm not sure if you touched on this just yet. I'm just tuning in, but I'm born and raised in the Bronx, okay? And... To see the new bail reform uh, regulations take effect, um, I, I just feel disgusted, you know. It's astonishing that we have such, we have young ladies and elderly women on the street. Um, we already have enough risk as it is on the subway and just being out on the street alone. And just to see these guys being able to make out of there within hours, not even days, hours. I am I mean, surprised that someone as a Bronx native as I am would think that. The idea, and this, this, I want to talk about bail reform as a concept and bail reform as the law. There are two separate issues here, and I want to make sure they're clear. Theory, 
First theory, then practice. In theory, bail reform is amazingly a good idea. It is so good. You know this, brother. You know someone gets arrested. They they were just on the corner with three other knuckleheads. They were not the knucklehead. They get arrested. They can't make bail. They're going to sit in Rikers Island for three months, man. They're going to lose their job, their family, everything, and they haven't been convicted. Now, that guy's wealthy. He's a lawyer who's, uh, you know, got a practice down there or an accountant, got his own uh, uh, practice. When they say bail's $100,000, his boys come down and write that check or give him that bank check. He can't write a check. They give him the bank check, and he's out. He's, he doesn't have to get punished like that. The way the system worked before this, it was all about punishing the poor. Guys losing jobs, guys losing families, guys not paying child support now. You got a guy who goes away, can't pay child support. Two months later, he loses his license, and he's not even convicted of nothing. Or maybe it's a misdemeanor, and his life is ruined. Now, I'm going to talk about the specific bail reform bill in New York State. That's a little bit different. That isn't perfect. I think you're right if you're concerned about that. The bill isn't perfect. There will be issues and concerns regarding the bill, absolutely. And the, what for most, most of you don't know this, but what I believe happened, when the bill was put into place, I think people would think of it like it usually goes back and forth in, in the assembly. They put everything into the bill, not realizing that since last election, His Majesty King Andrew II of New York controls all of the assembly, controls all of the Senate. There was no back and forth. They just went, yes, sir, your highness, check the box, and it was passed. Now we've got all this stuff in the bill, and I'm not sure they know what to do with it even. So now we're going to take six months to a year, I think, to go back and forth and figure out what should be changed and shifted in this bill, how we should read the bill, how it should be you know, acted upon, and within six months to a year, I think we're going to have a much better bill. What should have happened in the Assembly and the Senate didn't. That's going to have to happen on the streets. So I think you're right. There will be some problems. I'm agreeing with you. But the idea that we have bail reform, amazing. I'm happy. The sad part is we're going to have to figure out how that works best on the streets versus in the halls. And that's what we should have done. But if I have a choice of not having bail reform, or having this and having to work out in the streets, I'll take working out in the streets. It's all I could get. I've seen too many people sit in, sit in a jail. And again, I, I, I literally consult with defense attorneys, and I've seen guys who are wealthy come up with multiple friends with $100,000 each to get them out of jail. Meanwhile, the poor kid sits there for a year. Like you said, without a... Uh being convicted either it's i've too many cases where we have people in sitting in rikers just sitting there with no trial i think there was a 16 year old boy years ago that uh never saw the light of day until absolutely you know some point in time yeah look i'm, I'm being forward with you there are problems with the bill I, i'm it's not perfect well that's not a building but the law it's not perfect however i'm really happy it happened because prior to this new york state was 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 horrible with this and of course, prosecutors are angry. It's changing what they do. It's changing how they act. It's changing all those things, right? Of course. Of course, they're unhappy. Of course, cops are unhappy. It's changing how they act. They're arresting people when they're going back out. But remember something. 
putting people back on the street. You're not putting someone out on the street who got convicted. You're putting someone back on the street who got arrested. Now, there are provisions in the bill, if you read the, I mean, the law, if you read the actual law, it says if the person's violent, domestic violence or sexual violence, or if the person's prior convicted, or if the person missed court dates, that you can still assign bail. If they have a history of something bad, you can use that history to assign bail. The issue is many of the people now, DAs and judges, don't get it or don't want to get it, and they're acting accordingly. So what does that mean? That means we better elect our DAs better. We better stop just checking the box and look at what our DAs are doing. If you want a more lackadaisical DA, vote for one. If you want a more strict DA, vote for one. DAs are actually the ones who set the tone for a police force more than the actual police force. If a DA is letting everybody go, cops will stop arresting. A DA is attacking everybody, putting everybody in, cops do more arresting. Cops will respond to their environment. If the DA is hardcore, the cops are going to be more hardcore. The DA is more lackadaisical, the cops are more lackadaisical. So maybe we have to start worrying about, instead of what His Majesty is doing in Albany, why don't we get in the DAs that we want? Did that make my sense? My other question to you is, and I get you, my, my other question to, not to jump the gun, is uh, do you find any form of loophole so, so far with the way the state has set it up yet, or do you think it's just uh, just like an open platform to work on? No, I think the, 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 the what do you mean, to, to, to fix it? Is that what you're asking? Uh, let me rephrase myself. So um, do you think there's active loopholes that you would, uh, if you were in charge, if you were to close the loophole immediately, do you see any at all? And if so, no, how no. would you I, um, I, What I think it? has to happen, and, and I say this all the time, as the leader, as the governor, I don't assume that I know everything. I don't assume that. I assume the people on the on the ground know better than me. That's my assumption. So what's going to happen and what I'm okay with is the local prosecutors are going to be upset. They're going to do or say things that they, they think are correct. Judges are going to do or say things they think are correct that may or may not be in the best interest of the law. And there's going to be rulings. The courts are going to start with rulings. We're going to learn what's wrong and good with the bill. Sadly, again, this should have happened in the halls of the Assembly and Senate, but it didn't. So now we're going to learn through judges having rulings and saying, this is the answer. And other judges go, wait a minute, is it? Is it not? Conversations. When that begins to bubble up, that's why I'm saying six months to a year. That will bubble up and we'll see if there are any loopholes or see what the right answer is. I don't actually know. And that's okay. I don't have to know. We're going to see it pop up. Wow. I think that's a great answer. I mean, like you just said, I mean, I, I jumped into this topic thinking that, you know, the, the the platform was set straight. But after listening to you, I have to agree. I think there's a lot of uh, things to work on. And there are. I think it's just too early at this point. To and, and I hope even that the Assembly learned their lesson. We're not negotiating an Assembly anymore. His Majesty owns it all. <laughs> there's no negotiating. Put the bill you think is right. Have the conversation before you put it up there. There's no more back and forth. Everyone just goes, yay, and checks the box. It's done. I mean, it's so ironic that this happens without, uh, like you said, just they just check the box. Yep. Yeah, like a, a bill like electric bike legalization took months before Cuomo decided to say, yeah, no. Yeah, and no one will stop him. He runs it. When he goes, no, I don't see anybody overturning his veto. This has become Cuomo. 
Cuomo land. That's what New York State is. When I call my king, I'm not joking. All right, my friend. I appreciate the call. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good one. Have a good one. All right. So I, I hope that was a clear for those guys. We're talking about uh, the prison industrial complex. Uh, let me grab another call. If I could. I'm heading to Missouri. Going to get out of New York for a little bit. Heading to Missouri. Up. Oh, I'm sorry. He hung up. So the guy from Missouri. Hey, Missouri guy, please call back. Um, love to have you back on again. Please call back. Uh, so scratch that idea. We'll keep moving then if we could. Um, if you want to be, by the way, if you want to be in a program again, please feel free. Give a call. 573-427-5463. And Missouri, if you want to call back, please call back. I'm happy to have someone outside of New York State. I have a lot of New York State calls, obviously. I was traveling to state this weekend. A lot of people are calling in. Bail reform was a big deal. Here's something that, something again, the, the complex you may not get. Not just the prison industrial complex about people who are putting money into the complex or people who are making money from it. It's also the system itself. When you get arrested, and many people don't know this, you get arrested, it is absolutely legal for a prosecutor and for the cops to lie to you. They absolutely may lie to you. So they can say things like, oh, yeah, we got your fingerprints or we got three witnesses or I'm going to charge you with 17 charges, even though they know they can't actually do that. They'll do that and they'll scare you. Now, if you're wealthy, you know already you have a lawyer. When the cops start yelling and screaming, you just go lawyer and they stop and the lawyer comes up and the lawyer says, stop this. And you have good conversations and whatever. And if you're very wealthy, you're good to go. When you're not wealthy particularly if you come from a poor area that's either afraid of police or doesn't, tr- or doesn't know about the police or doesn't know about lawyers, can't afford lawyers, what happens then? At that point, when they start lying to you, you just get scared. You believe it all. You believe everything. Or you just start talking. This is the funny thing that people don't understand. Some of the people who talk the most are actually the most innocent. I know it sounds crazy. But let me give you the reality of this. Someone who was very innocent, who believes they're innocent, is innocent, believes they're innocent, is innocent, thinks, I can say whatever I want. I'm not guilty. I'll talk about everything. And they'll say all types of things, and they are ignorant of the law, so they're saying things that are against the law, thinking they're not against the law because their intention is nothing but good but they're actually saying things that are against the law because there are so many laws that we're all breaking them all the time. So they just start talking. Yes, officer, I did X, I did Y, I meant this, I said that, I said this. Remember your rights. Your rights, when they, when they say what you say can and will be used against you, they don't say what you say will be used against or for you if we see you're innocent. They don't say that because that's not how it works. How it works is they will use stuff against you to put you in jail or to get you convicted. So the innocent person talks and talks, saying the truth. They lie. You tell the truth. You sign a piece of paper thinking, oh, I signed a piece of paper. I'm set. That's what gets you indicted. That's what gets you in jail. That's what gets you convicted. And you're innocent. Or as you think you are. You didn't do anything on purpose. The guilty person will sometimes not say a thing. Why? Because they know they're guilty. Depends on the person. Some people will feel bad and think, if I just keep talking, they'll feel sorry for me. They won't. But they often think that and they keep talking if they feel guilty. But if you're super guilty 
and you've done this before, you know the system, you might just shut up. So sometimes we think as people on the outside, oh, he's quiet, maybe he's innocent, Uh, maybe he's guilty, who knows. He's talking, maybe he's innocent, Uh, maybe he's guilty, who knows. The issue is, it doesn't matter. If you talk a lot, you must tell the truth. They can lie if you're either not savvy, often poor, don't have uh, good lawyers, you're probably going to go to jail or at least be convicted or have to do a plea deal or something. There's the next piece. The system has to perpetuate itself, and it does. It just does. It is much better to move people through. About 90 to 95% of all people, uh, of all uh, um, cases, wind up becoming convicted, and most of them are plea, are plea bargains. The vast majority of plea bargains. There's plea. Why? They say, oh, I'll charge you with 80,000 things. Here's the worst part. They can set up all these plea bargains before they even show the evidence, before you're indicted if they want to. All of this. Now think about this. I'm poor. I'm a truck driver. I'm a mechanic. I'm a plumber. Insert thing here. Um, I get arrested. Maybe I did something bad. Maybe I didn't. Maybe I have cannabis on me. Maybe I've got marijuana on me. Maybe I did something that I should have done. Maybe it's illegal. Um, maybe I did. Maybe I, maybe I was speeding and I forgot my license. Who knows? Insert thing here. Whatever. I've got to be, I get arrested. I get arrested. And in this case, either I didn't do it or it's something not so bad. I get arrested. I head on in. The DA says, oh, you got arrested. Um, we're going to set the bail at $100,000, whatever the case may be, whatever he decides, whatever number they decide I have to get, I can't afford $10,000. I can't afford it. I can't come up with the money. What does that mean? I'm going to sit in jail until someone can find it. Is that one day? Is that five days? Is it a week? Is it a month? Maybe I have to sit in jail until my court date. Is that 60 days? Is that 90 days? When is that? Until, I, until my trial. When is that? What's going to happen to my truck that I drive? Or who's going to show up and be the plumber that I am? Not me. If I'm an owner-operator, well, then my truck just sits there. Nobody drives it. And I got to pay the bills in a truck and I can't and I'm gaining debt and I'm losing money and I'm in trouble. If I'm a plumber and I work for somebody, well, I just got fired. I lost my job. I lost my job. I lost everything. It's all gone. And I'm not convicted or it's something even minor to where at the end, after 90 days, they just go, you know what? Time served. Time served means you spent time in jail. Good for you. Time in jail is spent. Go home means it wasn't that big of a deal. Well, it was a big deal for you because you lost your job and your friends don't know you were arrested and spent time in jail. And if you go to a jail like Rikers Island here in New York, New York City, it is a violent jail and the odds are very high you will physically be hurt in some way, shape, or form. Physically hurt in some way, shape, or form. All for something that they go, time served, go home. But change that. Now I'm wealthy. Same thing, get arrested. I call my lawyer. Write my check. For the bank check, my friends bring cash. I go home. No one knows I got in trouble. Let's say check, no one knows. And if I get time served or whatever, if it's not a felony, no one even knows, done. Record's basically clean. Move on with my life. Life is good. Unless I work in finance that I'm in trouble. But unless I work in finance, I'm pretty good. So I'm not even worried about getting violently hurt or any of those things. I'm good. But if I'm poor, 
Here's the worst part. What if I didn't do anything? What if I'm one of those guys arrested with three or four of the guys who did something bad? I'm in the area. I get arrested because I live in a bad neighborhood or I live in a poor neighborhood or wrong place, wrong time. Happens all the time. And the DA tells me I'm part of the gang. I'm a mastermind. We got you as the leader. Total lies. We're going to put you in jail for 400 years. You're going to sit here for 90 days until, you know, because your bail's going to be so high because I stack up all the charges so that the bail is going to be high. I set the charges up. I'm going to plea to something I didn't do because I can't stay in jail for 90 days because my life is over if I do that. So I'd rather plea to something I did not do than go to jail for 90 days and basically end my life, lose my friends, lose my family, lose my career. I'd rather do that. That's what life is like prior to bail reform. But with bail reform, they go, okay, you made a mistake, go. The concept of bail reform, and to his point, it's not perfect in New York State, but the concept is, if you're a first-time offender, you shouldn't be punished the first-time offense. Does it mean you're a bad guy? You might be innocent. How about go home and don't lose everything over an arrest? Now, if you're convicted, I get it. You're going to go to jail or do parole or whatever the sentence is when you're convicted. I got it. But you're not convicted yet. Why in the world would you, why in the world would you not want to go home? But it gets worse. What happens when they freeze your assets? What happens when they say you can't do this or can't do that? So not only can you not work or sit in jail, but now your bank accounts are frozen because you're accused. Again, not convicted, accused. Because you're accused, they freeze your bank accounts or they freeze your assets, and now guess what happens? How are you going to defend yourself? How are you going to pay your bills? How are you going to pay your lawyer? How about that? How are you going to pay your lawyer? So you can't even defend yourself. I'm telling you, bail reform is a good idea. Not perfect, we'll fix it. I'm also telling you, the prison industrial system is a way of punishing poor people. It is a way of punishing the middle class. And you see it, it's just growing and growing and growing and growing. And nobody seems to care until it's someone they love. No one seems to care until it's someone that, that that's in their world towards them. Now, I say this because my father was a, a CEO, a corrections officer at Rikers Island, and my mother was a convicted felon. I saw this from both sides. I know what happens on both sides, and I still want fair. I want fairness to everybody. That's what I want. I want a fair trial for everybody. I want a fair trial for Harvey Weinstein. I want him to have a fair trial. I hope if he's guilty, which I think he is, I hope he goes to jail for a long time or whatever. I hope he gets convicted, but I still want a fair trial for him. Because if he gets a fair trial, we all get a fair trial. And that's what I want. And the sad part is right now in America, if you can write a check for six figures, you can get a fair trial. If you can write a check for seven figures, you can get off if you're guilty. If you can't write either of those checks, you're guilty, whether you're guilty or not. All right, I think I've talked a bunch um, about that. Uh, so I want to see if I can grab um, a couple um, co um, questions from the internet, if I could. All righty. Uh, okay. Let me see if I can find a couple here. 
All right. Uh, Trump was already involved in a war. This is going back to the uh, military industrial complex. Trump was already involved in a war, ISIS last Syria, long before the assassination of the Iranian general. Um, yeah, I agree. And I've said the same thing. Every one of the presidents since at least W, uh, pr- before that, I mean, I'm just, I just made up W, um, have said that, you know, we got to fight in Iraq and Afghanistan and whatever. And they all pick the same things. I mean, it doesn't matter, right? It's, I'm not impressed because Trump's war was ISIS or, and, you know, Obama's was Al-Qaeda. So what? They're all bad wars and Trump is no better or worse than all the rest of them. He's doing a, he's falling into the same trap as all the rest of them. You can't just go, well, I got this war from the last guy. Great. End it. End it. Obama should have ended it like he said he didn't. Trump should have ended it like he said he didn't. The next guy, is he going to end it? Next gal's going to end it? Maybe. I hope so. But I doubt it. Because someone actually happened, because, because something happened prior to you taking over, doesn't mean it's not your responsibility now. It may not be your fault. I, might, I would say that, right? It's not your fault. It's not Trump's fault that we're currently, that we were fighting the Middle East when he, when he took over. That's true. Not his fault. But it is now his responsibility to fix it. If he didn't like that, he shouldn't run for president. Same for Obama. Obama may, may not have liked it. It's not Obama's fault we were in Afghanistan or Iraq when he took over. But it was his responsibility once he took over to fix it. And it's Trump's responsibility now. I'm not blaming him for invading Iraq or, or Afghanistan. But it's his responsibility now. hope that was clear at least. All right, I'm going to grab a couple of them. Um, let's see. Um, many people are claiming that the war is fine since they attacked the U.S. embassy. Look, I get it. They attacked the embassy. So now we can kill all the people. No. Let me ask an important question. Why are we still fighting there? Do they attack embassies all over the place? Not usually here or there. Does that mean now we can just start assassinating all the people around them? Is that how that works? So because someone attacks our embassy, we now can decide to send 750 Marines back into a meat grinder of death. That's okay for you because they attacked an embassy. We could always just pull us out of Iraq. And Iraq said so. Iraq said you should get out. And we said, no, you owe us money. Shame on us. Shame on us. If Iraq says get out, you know what we should do? Get out. It's their country. They want us out. We should leave. We don't go, no, we're staying. Someone told me when they said that, well, if they say get out, we have to get out. I said, no, we don't. He said, well, they said get out. I said, what are they going to do? Nothing. America has decided that might makes right. We decided that. And this is proof. When the Iraqis say he's out to get out, we should have gotten out. So just because someone bombed their embassy doesn't mean all of a sudden we can do all-out war against somebody or attack their embassy. Remember, why are they attacking their embassy? Remember, everybody remember why they attacked their embassy? Because we were killing militia. We were attacking their militia. We are fighting in their country. That's the reason why they attacked their embassy. It wasn't random. They didn't go, you know what we should do today? Attack America's embassy. That's a good idea. Come on, guys. That's not what happened. We were attacking their militias, and so they attacked us in return. 
This isn't like it was just a one-off. Whenever you think your enemy is one-dimensional or two-dimensional, you're just hurting yourself. Every enemy is three-dimensional. All of them. All right. Let me keep going if I could. Um, let's see. Um, let me keep going. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, quote appeared. Um, oh, they liked my quote. Larry, how about shut up? Yeah, I'm okay with that. We can do that, yes. All right, so how do we solve the problems in the prison industrial complex? Well, that's the next piece, right? How do you begin to solve those problems? This is deep, just like the military industrial complex. The problem is these generate funds for the state. You can't just shut them off. They also generate jobs. Think about how many jobs are created by DAs and court officers and corrections officers and police forces and county clerks and on and on and on. I mean, there are literally thousands of jobs created by the prison industrial complex. And of course, someone says, well, they're all evil or bad jobs. Well, you don't feel that when it's your job and you're paying your bills and keeping your family, you know, uh, uh, afloat and paying for your, your kid's college doesn't seem evil at all to me. Not at all. You're doing what you think is the right thing. I get that. So how about instead we begin to pull it all away? Number one, stop using law enforcement as a profit center. Stop that. How do we do that? Several things. Number one, you can literally say, this is going to sound crazy, guys, just put a cap on how much money the government can take or use from what it takes. So, for example, I'm making this up for the sake of argument. You'll understand the concept. Um, County A brings in a million dollars every year in, in fines and fees. You cap them. No matter how many fines and fees you collect, you may only use 500000 All the rest must either be given away or given back to the people or insert thing here. Something else we've done with the state may, the county or state or government may not use them. It has to go back to, the, to a rebate or whatever the case may be. It's got to go back. Has to. Well, at that point now, there can't actually be any type of quota system. And there actually isn't a quota system at, at per se. It's not like the, the, the police chief or the DA saying, hey, get me 25 tickets today. Not that. But they're going to say, wait a minute. The numbers are low today. What's going on, guys? The numbers are low this month. What's going on, guys? And going to put pressure on them to keep going. We got bills to pay. We got a new vehicle to build. We got a new this to happen, right? If we limit that, then once they hit a certain cap, there's no incentive to do more. But Larry, cops will be lazy. No, cops will not be incentivized to punish for no reason. Cops will do what I want cops to do, make people safe, help the, 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 the uh, community, and only give tickets when they think they should give tickets not because someone's saying we need the money. Different issue. All of a sudden, speed traps become useless. They become, they be, you want to let the person know you're there. There's no trap. It's look, a cop is here. So I slow down versus speeding up so I can get a ticket so I can make money. Things will become safer. So first step, no more profit center. No, no, not, no more using law enforcement as a profit center. Capping helps tremendously. You can even cap with civil asset asset forfeiture. So if I if I if I grab things from people, I basically steal them as as government I steal them, I can only use X amount, the rest I have to give back. At that point, the incentive to take it goes away. Once you start seeing that, things begin to change. But it's the second piece. 
I've got to be able to have a way of these people doing something else, right? There's one concept that I talked about for COs, for corrections officers, and that was creating a secondary or tertiary piece within a prison system or within the jail system, preferably prison system in this case, but could be jail system in theory depending upon how many people are going through the jail, but generally a prison system, right? There are obviously three types of people in prison. Those people who probably should never get out. Two, those people who should do their time and should get out. And those people who shouldn't be in prison at all. The problem is I don't know which ones are which. There's no way I can know. Who has a better uh, idea of knowing who those people are? The corrections officers. They deal with them every day. They're the ones dealing with them. So how do you handle that? Well, I have an idea. How about you create a secondary or tertiary piece, which is almost like a reform or training or um, separations within the actual prison system. They have a, a concept in, I think it's Massachusetts, called the Humvee program. The Humvee program is a program where, I think this one's only veterans, veterans who they think have a good chance of getting out, head on into a, a separate platoon, a separate unit. That unit is run by two COs, and the rest are all volunteers. The volunteers are usually veterans who've been successful on the outside, they do it for free, they want to, they come on in, charities do this all the time, and they help support these people and get these guys back out into the world to be successful. Now, the critical piece here is it's not just an outsider. It is COs deciding who goes in and who doesn't go in. They who know the people there are able to go, yes, this guy's good. That guy will work. Let's get these guys in. Let's make this happen. They help to control the population and decide who goes in and goes out. And they help the volunteers do this. What does that mean? No extra money. Same COs. I don't have to hire extra CEOs. Same ones. And there are tons of CEOs. I talk to them all the time. Who would be happy to join this? Not every CEO would. Some CEO wants to be a prison guard, wants to be in the regular prison. Awesome. Go ahead. But there are plenty of them who've told me, this is their words, I'm tired of rolling around on the floor with these guys. Their words, not mine. So if you're one of those CEOs who's like, I'm tired of rolling around on the floor with these guys, you will happily join this. Hey, I'm in. Volunteer. I'll take this. I'll jump on board. As they begin to jump on board and make this happen, now what begins to happen with these COs? They can become therapists. They can become social workers. They can become mentors. They can begin to build their own uh, companies. They can do other things. Those who want to transition out can. Some won't. Some will be happy in the prison system. Some will want to work for the state the entire time. Some won't. I'm okay either way but it gives me the opportunity to do more, bigger, badder things. Literally, they could want to become recruiters uh, for other companies to recruit people from the prison population to join because they will know them so well, they'll be able to judge them coming into other larger organizations. So you're giving these people the opportunity to start to, be, to do different things with their lives if they want to. This is how we can begin to make the, the prison industrial complex get smaller without having to spend so much money allowing people to go off and do other things without laying tons of people off. These are all good ideas. So there's many of them. The idea though always is getting the, the private sector or the nonprofit center invo sector involved to ensure there's a transition. What you hear me often say is people who are afraid make bad decisions. If you just start laying people off, they become afraid. You've got to give them a transition so that when they have to go through this disruption, and there will be disruption as we break the prison industrial complex. It will happen. But as it begins to happen, 
people have to feel safe or they make bad decisions. Now, again, does that mean every person comes out of prison? Of course not. Some people should be in prison forever, and some will be. But remember something. Some of you may not realize this. The vast majority of people in prison at one point in their life get out. They get out. And right now, our prison industrial complex is very happy about putting them all right back in. So we don't have a system that is helping people. We don't have a justice system. We don't have a reform system. We have a punishment system. Now, you punish some guy or some gal for five or six or eight or ten years, how are they going to feel when they get out? Not so good. How are they going to respond to the world? Not so much. When I was running for governor, I, people said, well, won't you just immediately pardon everybody and let everybody out you know, who's uh, you know, been convicted of a, of a nonviolent crime? I said, I actually might not. And they were like, what? I said, I actually might not. But there was a nonviolent crime that's not violent. And my response was, some of these people have been in jail 5, 10, 15, 20 years. They weren't violent when they were arrested, but they might be now. So it would be unfair for them, unfair for us, unfair for everyone to just let them back out. You might have to have some form of separations, whether that's a month, two months, three months, whatever that amount is, to get these people ready to get back out. Not just that you're going to let people back out with no jobs, back out into a field like, like that. They're going to compete with people who haven't been in prison to get the same jobs with no jobs out there. Wow, what a bad idea that would be. So we've got to make sure that we're able to find the right uh, answers and we have to find um, the right way of fixing the, the prison industrial complex. There are many of them. It isn't just five-minute conversation. It's a lot, and we can do it. And by the way, if you want to see, you can always head over to LarrySharp.com, and that is my policy page. So if you want to see those policies, you can. All right, um, see if I can grab a couple of these here. Uh, uh, uh. Okay. Um, what is the libertarian solution to homelessness and affordable health care? Yeah, this is a tough one too. These are two big issues that people talk about all the time. It's a little bit off topic, but I'm happy to just take a question because you guys uh, put it in, the, I'm assuming I think it was YouTube or Facebook. You put it, I'm happy to take it. As a general rule, we have to remember something. Currently, homelessness is not being treated well at all. Our answer tends to be the same thing. Leave them alone or get more shelters. This has both been failing. That has been the, the state's answer, the city's answer consistently. Leave them alone. Just let them go everywhere and sit in the subways, uh, lay in the streets, literally go to the bathroom on the street, right? Do that. It's option one. Option two, build more shelters. Now, there's many problems with both of those things. What most people don't realize is once a homeless person has been on the street for a certain amount of time, Sometimes they don't actually want to get back into the world. They don't want to get back into the, uh, 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 a world full of the you know, homes and bathrooms and things like that. They don't always know. It's difficult. They don't always want to do that. Now, that could be anywhere from a year to three years. Not just that. Many of them don't want to go into shelters because the shelters are more dangerous than the streets. They know the streets. They know where to go and where not to go. They go into a shelter and it's more dangerous. So the other answer has been build them nice homes. Well, sometimes you build them nice big homes, they're accustomed to living in boxes in the streets. I'm not joking. So what do they do? They basically create a box within the, the apartment. You give them a one-bedroom apartment, and they all live 
in the bathroom or the guy lives only in the kitchen. He lives in one room because that's all he knows for literally years. It doesn't work. The answer is twofold. One, why aren't we allowing for tiny houses? We don't in New York City. We don't in New York State. They don't fit the code. But a tiny house is a very good for some people. Again, this is voluntary. For some people to move from the street to a tiny house before they move to a regular house or apartment. So maybe allowing for tiny houses. That's one easy, easy answer. That's not the only answer, but it's one. But it's a second answer. And that is to actually get the people in the nonprofit section, this nonprofit sector, to help us out and to encourage them. An example I will give, this was a couple years back, maybe 15 years ago, 10 years ago, there was a, comp- there was a, a nonprofit that was literally driving mobile showers uh, in New York City. They would drive by New York City, mobile shower would be out there, and they would give homeless people the opportunity to come in, wash, and change their clothes. It was new, there was new clothes there also. They could change their clothes. They would give out clothes and, and shower. Uh, if you've known anyone who's been homeless or if you've been homeless yourself, you know, if you can't shower and change your clothes, very hard for you to ever head back to your family when you haven't showered in three weeks. Very hard for you to ever get a job if you can't put on new clothes or even showered in two weeks. Pretty hard to do that. So instead, this company was doing this. This nonprofit was doing it. New York City shut them down. Parking issues. Yep, parking issues. Breaking codes and such. What was their answer? Nothing. How about we help the homeless that way? How about we allow people who know how to deal with them? Here's what I know about homeless, about people who know people who are homeless. They care. They're thinking. They want their loved ones to come back home. If you had a mobile station to where your home, your, your loved one could show up every week or every incertain number of days, whatever the appropriate time is, to, to get washed up and to get new clothes, you'd know where he is. You could show up and go, Uncle John, it's good to see you. I'm glad you have a shower. You know we love you. How about come home? How about get some help? How about X, Y, and Z? Here's your friend from the military, uh, from the Marine Corps, who served with you in Afghanistan. He's come to say hi. Why don't you talk to them for a little bit? You could do that instead of where's Uncle John? I don't know. I haven't seen him in three. I haven't seen him in two years. I don't know. I haven't seen him in two months. Now, all of a sudden, you got a shot. These kind of ideas actually could work. Right now, who can be there to the showers? Social workers can be there. So if you're looking for help, if that homeless person's looking to get off the streets and to be forward, not all of them are. It's just a fact. Not all of them are. But if they are, the help is there. The help is there. But remember something. When government is trying to solve a problem, it isn't trying to solve a problem. Government is created to serve, not to help so if you create a government organization to serve the homeless population, it will not help the, ser- the homeless population. It will serve the population. So if the population requires shelters, it will create shelters. Or in the case of New York City, it will pay money for hotels. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars, the city will pay hotels. I'm not joking. So that it can keep homeless people in it. Yep, thousands of dollars every single day. Thousands upon thousands of dollars Every single day to pay homeless homeless people to go into uh, hotels. Is that making the homeless population less? Is that helping? I don't think so. It's servicing them. 
Well, do I lose my job if less homeless people exist? Yeah. What's my incentive to actually help them? There is none. My incentive is to serve them. But if I'm a nonprofit, my incentive is to actually help them. I want less people on the streets. So you want to solve that problem? I have an idea. One, let people have tiny houses. Two, bring the nonprofit world in and support them. All right, what's up, today's Solution for Affordable Healthcare. Another tough one, I could spend an hour on this, but I won't because I don't have that much time. They will throw me out of the studio. So I will not spend that much time on this one. However, let me give you a couple of ideas. Here's the number one thing to remember when it comes to healthcare. And I've brought this up a thousand times. I hope some of you people like hearing the hits. I'll bring it up again. Whenever you see government controlling industries, certain things are, are the same every time. Prices wind up going up, service winds up going down, and accessibility winds up going down. That's a common theme. We can see that directly in healthcare. Government controls healthcare, except for non-essential healthcare. Things like LASIK eye surgery, uh, body enhancements, cosmetic dentistry, things like that. So if you look at LASIK eye surgery, cosmetic dentistry, body enhancements, in every case, price has gone down, service has gotten better, accessibility has increased. Look at government-run healthcare. Prices have gone up, service has gone down, accessibility has shrunk. Every time. Let me ask you, if you know this, is there a certificate of need required by the government if you can open up your LASIK eye surgery place? No. Your cosmetic dentistry joint? No. Yet somehow they function and work well and get things done. When I was a kid and they were doing LASIK eye surgery, I'm the kid, man, I was a bit old when I was doing it, it was so expensive, yeah, they would charge you per eye because you couldn't afford both eyes. That's how expensive it was. Now everybody gets it. Everybody gets lazy guys surgery now. You want to make healthcare affordable? Pull the government out. Once you pull the government out, now private companies will go, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. How do I get paid? How do I get paid? Oh, I have to come up with a system so that I can get paid. And what has happened already already has happened in certain areas. What do they do? They create basically a Costco model or a gym model, right? Everyone pays a flat fee and you can go to that place, that, that hospital for five bucks or 10 bucks just to show up. That's all it is. It's a small copay of five or 10 bucks to go to your doctor. And whoever's in that doctor's office, you could see them, whatever their specialties are, you get access to them. That's it, five bucks. That's it. So you and your family pay 200 bucks a month, 500 bucks a month, whatever it is. Whenever you're sick, you show up, it costs you five or 10 bucks. So what's in my best interest, interest as a doctor? You never showing up, like a gym. I hope you never come to the gym, right? I want you to give me, me the money, never show up. So I'm gonna try to make you as healthy as possible. Of course, I want you to be healthy so you never come in. My goal is your health. Our goals are aligned. What if I'm a doctor who takes insurance? What's my goal? You being sick. Because how do I make my money? By you being sick. Which is why every single time that you go to an, a doctor who takes insurance, it ends the same way. A procedure, a prescription, or a test. Why? That's how she gets paid. If you're not doing those things, she's not getting paid. So of course it ends that way. But if you're paying X hundred bucks a month, period, I hope you never show up. But Larry, what about poor people? Great question. How about the government now says something cool like, 
hey, big organization that does this this thing with 200 bucks a month or 500 bucks a month, whatever it is, if you take on X percent of your people, X number, Y number of people who we as government deem poor, I'm making this up, um, um, qualify for school lunch, whatever the, the requirement would be, or make X or Y dollars per year, then you don't pay any payroll tax. Smaller um, organizations probably wouldn't take advantage of that because their staff is so low, you probably don't save much money. But larger hospitals, hospital groups, would jump all over that. And all of a sudden now, everyone's getting the same high-quality health care. Poor, rich, not so rich, doesn't matter because everyone gets treated the same way no matter what. Now, I did that quickly in a couple of minutes. There's a lot more details in that, but I hope that was interesting for you guys to hear that. If you care more about that, guess what? LarrySharp.com. My policy library still exists. So, guys, I want to say thank you for today's show. I appreciate it. We covered a lot of stuff. We chatted about the prison industrial complex. We talked about the military industrial complex. We talked about New York State. We took some phone calls. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you really enjoy it, again, remember, as Eric said, support it. Patreon.com slash Sharpway. Give what you can give. If you want me to keep going, I will keep going, but you got to help me out. I'm taking out my time, my money. You got to help out. Support me. All right, guys. I will see you all next week here on A Sharp Way.